Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Dream Drive. Hey, folks, rent a cool, customized camper van to explore some of the beautiful areas of Japan a bit off the beaten track. Get back to nature, take a hike, go camping, discover rivers and lakes and remote temples and shrines, and even sleep right there. Dream Drive, your hotel on wheels. Hey, greetings, everybody. It's time to get your motor running and head out to the highway. This episode, I speak with the president of Ducati Motorcycles Japan, Mr. Mats Lindstrom. You don't have to be a bike guy or a gearhead to enjoy this conversation with Mats. We chat about empowerment in Japan, his unique strategy for conducting management meetings in English, and his biggest takeaways from his Ikea days when he arrived in Japan to start up the first stores in 2005. Of course, we talk about the bike business, specifically how he differentiates Ducati from the established domestic brands, why Ducati owners are known for loyalty and passion for the brand, and he shares success stories from the first DRE, the Ducati Riding Experience program he initiated earlier this year. Learn how accessible, exciting, and easy to own a Ducati bike can be. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Mats Lindstrom. Obviously, you see the Yamahas, the Hondas, Suzukis, Kawasakis, they're a competition. Yeah. How do you market? How do you differentiate? How do you brand Ducati? How do you make it special? in Japan. It's back to the roots, the basic, the core values. I mean, it's design, sophistication, performance. So, so we are different, so to say. We're not trying to be a Japanese brand. We will never be like a Japanese brand. We're, we're, we go our own way. Were you always a bike guy? I mean, were you a motorcycle guy even before joining Ducati? Even before preschool, yes. I have a memory from when I was about three years old. I was with my mom and we were going to visit an uncle. And I just recalled sort of going around his house looking for him. And all of a sudden the garage doors open and he comes out on a sidecar motorcycle. I have no idea what brand. Cool. But I distinctly remember that, that memory. I was like, oh, that's for me. Nobody else has sort of influenced me into motorcyclists. But I've, since that moment, it has always been there that I want to ride. I want to ride a motorcycle. At 12, I started stealing my, uh, stealing, borrowing my sister's uh, moped and uh, and so on. So, what was your first bike? My first bike, my first real bike that I bought was a Suzuki GSX 550 EF, uh, 1985. So, did you do touring around Sweden on this bike? Uh, a little bit, not so much around Sweden. I was more in the neighborhood area and around. I sort of grew up in Gothenburg, in and outside of Gothenburg and so on. But none of my friends had motorcycles, so it took years and years and years for the first friend I had to to get a motorcycle. But if you have a bike, yeah, don't bike guys naturally come together you're riding around you meet somebody oh you have a bike too and you become friends that way kind of, well you it's there's a camaraderie around bikers especially around the world basically so i mean in basically any country except for japan when you meet another biker you you raise your hand or you nod your head as a recognition that yeah you're on a bike too 
But you don't do that in Japan. Why not? I'm, I don't know. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of bikers here in Japan, and they said that, yeah, it's like 25, 20 years ago, people did that, but stopped. And it's it's a really shame. And I uh, talked to a lot of people said, yeah, it's... I spoke to a journalist the other week and I said, I don't know why we don't do that anymore. So, but it's, it's, uh, it's pretty sad. Not even if you're on the same brand of bike? Sometimes you get that with, uh, I mean, with Ducatisti, sometimes like, oh, uh, but but it's not, it doesn't come natural, so to say, for anyone, So, which is sad. If you go to Italy, for instance, people are just like waving from like hundreds of meters away. It's like, hey, and <laughs> shouting and sometimes yeah. as well. So it's, it's really cool. Then group riding and so on, there are a lot of different people. Some people go out every weekend and it's always with friends and they're desperate to call around people and it's like, yeah, it's, maybe it's going to rain, but let's go anyway and, and so on. And other people and friends of mine that, are sort of, that would never ever go with anyone, they go alone and nothing else. Uh, your, your personality comes out when it comes to riding a bike, I guess. Yeah. It's not that they don't want to meet other people. So, I mean, they stop for coffee or gas, they talk, but when riding, it's like, no, no, go alone. So, yeah, different personalities. Yeah. Not a way of expression, but you have a different, it's a different kind of worn-out word with motorcycles is freedom. But, yeah, it is kind of a freedom, and, and, but you become somebody else. It's a, for me, it's, motorcycles is a bit of a lazy man zen. Whoa, say that again. Lazy man's Zen, so Zen meditation. It's actually, I think, uh, like 30 years ago, there was a documentary about road racing that was called something like that. But, right. but to me, that stuck because it is that. Now the people they might listen to music. They have their phone connected. I I disconnect everything, and it's just me. Ducati is a very interesting brand to me because it reminds me of one of the very popular brands we have. It's a French cast iron brand, and yep. there's a lot of great cast iron brands. Some of them are more fashion focused, some of them are more mass market focused, but people that love Stobe are really passionate for, I think, the same reasons people like Ducati, in that it's emotional and it's exclusive. Hmm. Ducati, to me, is one of those specialty brands for people who really love bikes, appreciate performance and want to have that feel of some kind of exclusivity. Am I wrong? No, you're right on, on basically all points, sir. Ducati, we have an extremely loyal customer group. They love our, our brand and our products. People don't buy what you make or why you make it. They buy what you help them become. The people who rode and ride Ducati, they're a little bit different, so they're motorcyclists, but they're really focused on talking only Ducati, 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 Ducati. So they're a crazy bunch of people, but not bad, but just they're different. And never got it. Yeah. Until I got on and test rode the Ducati the first time, and it's like, now I get it. The feel is different. Everything feels not better or worse, but it's different. Yeah. For me, it, it clicked immediately. It's like, wow, this is... I felt connected. I felt... Uh, sounds ridiculous but the communication between you as a rider and the bike i've never experienced the same how to say communication feeling the movement of the bike how it reacts to what you want to do how you approach a corner and get in and get out and that's what i kind of mean by an exclusivity feel feels unique to you not every it's not a mass market product people buy what you help them to become so to say and it's you don't become superman by riding a, a certain bike and so on but you get the feeling that wow 
I feel different. If you buy a Ducati, I mean, you know people is going to look. People yeah. are going to look because it, the design is different. There are a little bit of people that, yeah, they don't mind people looking. It's not to show off, but right. it's just sort of, here I am. That's a very good point, because I, I was just about to say, it's not like a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. It's an ego thing. Hey, look at me. Ducati people don't strike me that way. We have a lot of customers. I met a lot of customers. They're, as personality, very low-key. They don't make too much noise. They don't grab a lot of attention, but they still like that they get some, I mean, anywhere you pull in on a parking spot or in front of a cafe or a roadside place on the highway. When you come into Ducati, people turn their head. They look. It's sort of, yeah, it's kind of cool. That's interesting. So bikes bring out a distinct personality in their users. Immediately, you can spot the Harley Davidson guy. You can probably figure out the Triumph owner. The Kawasaki Ninja and the Suzuki Katana owners probably fit into the same demographic. What about Ducati? Is there a Ducati type? I mean, we have eight different product families, so it's a lot of, and each product family basically has uh, a little bit unique character of, of the customers. Of course, customer walk sort of change in between as well, but there is less movement between, let's say, a Diablo. If you ride a Diablo and then moving to a different category, there is less movement, so to say, than you, you wouldn't expect. I would think that owners would upgrade their bikes over the years. They may start with uh, entry level and then move all the way up to more advanced. That's not the case? Not necessarily, no. We have a lot of customers that start with the really, I mean, the really big bikes. And I mean, the Panigale, which is basically the uh, Panigale V4, which is sort of the superbike of superbikes. Wow. They start with that. Say. These guys usually, or girls, usually come from another brand. So it's not their first bike. But we have that as well. I mean, we have people who never ridden a motorcycle before, and the first bike they get is a Ducati. But going back to the customer, if there is a Ducati type, yeah, it is. We have a lot of engineers in our owners group, and I'm talking about Japan. There's a lot of interest. People who are on, um, interested in technology, Right. they want to have Ducati because we have the, the latest, the most advanced, and, and really, for such a small company, we managed to make some absolutely amazing motorcycles. The performance is different, and by performance, I don't, I don't only talk about or mean speed. Performance as in braking, as in handling, as in cornering, and, and so for Ducati, performance is not equal speed. Anyone can make a motorcycle go super fast in a straight line. Braking is a challenge. That's the tricky thing. Cornering and braking is a challenge. So, but if you have a bike that performs extremely well in all those situations, it also makes the bike feel alive in a way. And we have a reputation among people who have basically not ridden a Ducati, but there is a reputation that Ducati is only for very experienced, highly skilled riders, which is completely not true. I mean, 20 years ago, yes, uh, they were a bit, uh, I mean, feisty and uh, they were a bit different. That's why I said there's a similarity between our Stobe brand. There's an assumption that Stobe is only for French food, or it's very difficult to cook with it or something yep. like that, so very similar. Mm. Is there a learning curve to riding a Ducati? No, I would say no. Okay, I'm a little bit biased then, of course, since I work for Brand, but in my experience, no. I mean, the bikes are, I mean, it has never ever in the history of bikes been easier to ride a motorcycle than today. It has never ever been safer because all the support systems that you today have in any motorcycle, I mean, you have cornering ABS, you have riding modes, you have system that supports you that the bike won't 
wheelie if you pull the throttle too hard and it will not lock up the brakes and so on. So you have all these support, which helps a lot. But the learning curve, of course, but that's with any motorcycle. You, you start and then you, you gradually learn. The more you ride, the better you usually get. Yeah, makes sense. Our bikes are usually the lightest in any category. They're also easier to move around and handle. So. What's so. your most popular brand in Japan? Series? Family, product family, family we call yeah. it. The super bikes are always extremely popular. Scrambler is going really, really well. Scrambler is so. a nice looking bike. Yeah, it's, it's a cool bike. It's my everyday commuter bike. So I commute every day a year uh, on my Scrambler. So. Even in the rain? Even in the rain, even in snow. Wow. It's not Swedish yeah. snow in Japan, okay. so it's lighter snow, in, especially in Tokyo, Yokohama area. And you change tires? There's no. winter tires? No? Yeah, there are, but I mean, I mean, it's not that much snow. I mean, a Scrambler, I don't have race tires on it, so I don't have slicks. I have sort of it's the, the original knobby tires, so it's, okay. it's good grip. It's an easily handling bike. It goes anywhere. So you came to Japan in 2005. Correct. With Ikea. You came over for the opening of the Ikea store in Japan, right? I came here to be part of the startup team, so okay. starting up the new store, so, so the first store and the second store and so on. So. Did the Ikea philosophy, did that translate very well into Japan in the early days or did you have to do some localization? No. There was a lot of people, a lot of experts saying that uh, you have to change this and this concept will not work people don't have they will not go and pick up their own things in the self-serve area they will not drive them home they cannot assemble them themselves uh, the size of the furniture is wrong basically Every, everything that ikea stands yeah for. basically change everything and i think one of the strengths with ikea is that they know the concept and they know that the concept works and they change for no one there was no change. And what everybody said will not work, worked great. It was never any bigger sort of issues. One of the benefits, I mean, if you, um, I mean, you spend a lot of money, time, energy to writing instructions in, in Sweden and in Europe and so on, nobody reads it. Good thing with Japan, if you have an instruction, people read it. People come to the store on how to shop at Ikea. So they kind of know how to, in theory, how to do it. Yeah. So, which was, Really interesting. First ever, I think. I mean, you're coming from Sweden into yeah. Japan. You're opening these new stores. Everybody's telling you that it's not going to work unless you change this. Mm. What was your takeaway? Listen to people who are here. Listen to people. Learn from people. And then building a strong brand in Japan. Be consistent. Stick with it. Stick with your identity. Don't change it. When you start changing, people see okay, this is different from what you do on other markets. Right. Then you lose the identity, and then the, the whole authenticity is, is the word? Yeah, authenticity. Yeah, authenticity, thank you. It gets lost. You have to be true to who you are. That's a good point. Localization is very good for some things, but if you localize too much, then you just lose that essence that's, that made you popular in the first place. Yeah. The strength of being a, a non-Japanese brand in Japan is also that you are different and be different. Uh, because I think in, in Japan, people read a lot. They're very read up. It's, the customers are really intelligent. They know what they're talking about. You can't cheat your way through and, and so because they want details. They want to know. And usually they have read up and they want confirmation. So That's an excellent point, Mavs. And especially with Ducati. People that love Ducati 
might know more about Ducati than your salespeople in the stores. Yeah, for sure. It's possible. Yeah. And you have over 40 directly operated dealerships in Japan, similar to me. And the big challenge is to maintain a consistent level of professionalism, which includes product knowledge, and hospitality, which ties into the passionate and the emotional part of the brand. How do you manage that? How do you ensure that you keep that level that you expect? We, I mean, of course, we do the training every year and, and uh, several times a year, and we, we try to support as much as possible. But we also have these uh, customers fill in when they buy a bike or they service a bike, they fill in basically a questionnaire sort of how satisfied are you with your experience. And I read all of them. 100%. I read all of them because we do follow up calls with customers as well. I mean, they send in and they're dissatisfied. We call them up and say, can we ask you about this? What was your experience and what were your expectations? We follow up on key points. We have questions, I think, that few other brands have from customers. I mean, I've I've talked to salespeople and said that we need to know how the rear swing arm, how the aluminum was casted. Oh, my gosh. And it's like... And my first reaction was like, why in the hell would you like to know that? Engineers in, in Bologna, they know that. They said, no, no, but this is real customer questions. They really want to know. Yeah. Because when they pull up with their friends or people asking them, it's like, they know. It's, it's on the detail level. So the Japanese customer is different. They're more focused on uh, detail and they, they want to have an understanding of what they're buying. When I joined the company, Claudio Dominicali, the president of Ducati, he took me out for dinner the first time I was in Italy. And uh, we talked and said, yeah, I mean, uh, luxury brand and so on. And said, no, 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 no. We are a premium brand. We're not luxury. And he said, the big difference is that Ferrari is a luxury brand. And for most people, it's a dream. Few people can pay 50, 60, 70 million yen right. or even more for a car. So it's a dream. So a lot of people would want to have it but very few people can actually afford one. He said, Ducati, the most expensive bike you have. I mean, we have some specific special models that cost a lot of money, but so you, can get, you can get the Ferrari Performance for a little bit over 3 million yen. Wow. And you can get the Ferrari Performance, Italian styling, in your garage. The accessibility is very different. I'm curious, now that I hear you speak about that. So it sounds like when you buy a Ducati bike, it lasts a long time. It's great quality. In my business, consumer goods, we talk about the consumer lifetime value. So we sell knives, we sell pots, fry pans, tools, electrics. Zwilling used to be only knives. And you bought a knife, and that knife would last for 30, 40, 50 years. You'd give it to your grandchildren for free. What about Ducati? When somebody buys a bike, what future sales can you generate with a Ducati owner? The quality of our motorcycles have never been better, ever. I mean, if you take the, our flagship model now, the new Multistrada V4, it has 60,000 kilometers service intervals. Oh, wow. That's one and a half times around the globe. <laughs> That's a great catchphrase. Yeah, I mean, it is. Nobody comes close to that. And that's how good quality is. Right. I saw on your website 
you sell customized jackets yeah. and helmets and boots and all these kind of things, but do you have to just sell more bikes to make more money? It varies a lot between customer to customer. You see different people, different personalities. So some people change bikes more often. Yeah, okay. Uh, other people have the bikes for a long time. We have a lot of customers that we're also following up with that do, I mean, 100,000, 200,000 kilometers. They have so many kilometers on their odometer, so the odometer actually doesn't work anymore. Okay, they're back Which to one mile, yeah, but, uh, or it, one kilometer. No, it doesn't register because okay. it's over. And then we, we support these customers and take care of them. You were mentioning apparel and uh, helmets and gloves and whatnot, so yeah, yeah, I think we, if you look at any other brand, there is an American brand that I think is on the same range that they have a lot, but no other brands have the width and the depth of what we sell yeah. and what we have and what we can offer our customers because it, it's about the experience, right. the customer journey. You have the DRE, the Ducati Riding Experience, yep. and this is for Ducati owners or for potential Ducati owners? It's for everybody. We started this year. We wanted to start last year, but because of the COVID, we couldn't get started. Right. So we started this year with the, what's called DRE Road, so Ducati Riding Experience Road, which is basically a you learn in a, a safe and fun environment to how to handle the bike, yep. cornering, slalom, braking, stuff like that, in a, in a fun way, and in a premium way. And where do you do this? Different locations. This time uh, we we done it in Hakone the first time. Oh, nice. And we also did DRE race now in October, the first ever. So there are a lot of riders in Japan that are really skilled. I mean, the skill level is just amazing. Right. And then you have, but so this time we had people who had never been on a on a race circuit before, right. and we had people who go ten times a year. But it's open to anyone. The purpose of the DRE, depending on which DRE you participate in, you get the feel for Ducati. What is Ducati? If you participate in DRE Road, you can basically try not all the models, but most of the models and just get a feel for it. So before you buy, you can join and you can get a feel for it or after you bought and and sort of learn and how to sort of... I love that. Try it and you'll like it. Yeah. With Ducati driving experiences, do you see a very high conversion rate? or upgrade rate? Obviously there's a return on investment with this. Is this the... Is this not, the... not really. I mean, it, it's costing us a lot of money to do this, but okay. we do it because of the customer journey, so the, the, the satis- customer satisfaction. This is something fun to do, to okay. try. Customers that have participated, they are riding privately one model, but they join because they want to try another model just to test it. That's cool. Yeah. But if it's somebody like me, that doesn't own a bike. Yeah, I could participate. I could go to. As long as you have a license, yes. Right. Oh, yeah. you have to have a bike license. Yes. Even though it's in a closed. And ex- it's not entirely closed because okay. the, the the race is of course closed on a circuit, but the DRE road is a yeah. mix. We do it in a closed closed area, and then we also do a test ride, which is on a regular road. And you're talking about motorcycles, it's powerful machines. So if you've never ridden a motorcycle before, it's dangerous. So you need a license before you get into this. Understood. So we are not a a driving school, how to learn how to ride a motorcycle. We are how to ride in a safe way with Ducati and have fun. Uh, For me, it was absolutely fantastic experience doing the first DRE this year. 
fortunately or unfortunately, but both occasions when we did it, it was pouring rain. It was typhoons coming in and the rain was pouring down. And I had customers coming up to me before we started, before I started the presentation and said, okay, so today's only going to be theory, right? No, you're going to write. And I was like, whoa. And a lot of stiff faces and uh, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to ride, sort of ride around in the rain. And a lot of people have never done that, really. I also told people in my initial speech that, well, welcome and, and yada, 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 all of this. But, uh, not yada, but did welcome. Did you say yada, yada, yada? I did not say that. I said, uh, welcome to DRE. <laughs> and no, so. no, I mean right now. Yeah. <laughs> you can cut that out. So. No, but, no, no, I love it. No. Uh, where'd you learn that? That's very American. Yeah, I don't know. TV, okay. I guess. So. Uh, American friends and so on. Yeah. But after the initial welcome and speech and so on, I told people that, yeah, I see a lot of tense faces uh, because you're going to ride in the rain. But I said, this is the best opportunity you will ever have. Because how many of you would take your own motorcycle, do emergency brake test, slalom test, maneuvering test, all of that in heavy rain? But nobody. Yeah. And here you have, we give you a brand new Ducati, and you will try, and it will be safe. Afterwards, with all the smiling faces, I mean, people were smiling from ear to ear in the afternoon, and it was like, oh, this was so great, this was so much fun. That's cool, that's a testimonial too, because if they're in the worst weather conditions, and your bikes are handling marvelously, perfectly, and they feel such a sense of security, even in these terrible conditions, you've shown Ducati performance in the worst conditions, imagine how much better it's going to be in the best conditions. Yeah. More fun when you're not scared of falling over. This is true. <laughs> and I'm, o- I'm only laughing because I keep wanting to talk about you and your Japan experience, but we keep coming back to bike talk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. I would try to behave. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families and is more affordable than trains and hotels as it's only one price per night. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. You live in the land of great motorcycle brands, Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki. How do you differentiate Ducati in such a strong domestic market? Ducati is different. One of the first things that people say or think is design. The design is different, and it's it's very Italian. It is. It's an Italian soul. In my opinion, the most beautiful bikes ever in any category designed. The whole building process, when making a new bike, it starts with design concepts, basically. It's not a mass market brand. It's almost handcrafted. Yeah, well, kind of, yes. The brand is small compared to the Japanese brands, but it's growing. We are growing. The bikes are unique, so you can immediately... Regardless of which category, which bike family, you can spot the Ducati from long away. So that's a Ducati. You can hear a Ducati from yeah. a long way away. Yeah, the, the big L-Twin and uh, now with the V4 as well, which has the firing order of the V4, so four cylinders, is similar to a V2. So it sounds, it still has a V2 sound, so which is very important for a lot of our customers. Are there any Ducati owners that they just like the sound? Me. <laughs> you. 
guilty as charged. Yeah, I guess it's, I mean, I love the sound. For a lot of our Ducatisti, the sound is a big part of it. No other brand sounds like a Ducati. It has a very unique, distinct sound. Everybody stops and takes a look, right? Yeah, and it, it's important. It's an identity thing. Let's talk about you, Mats. Yeah. As a leader, you believe in empowering teams and individuals. But how do you empower in Japan the land of conformity, rules, and risk aversion? Keyword is involvement, involving people. When you have information and that you feel that you are involved, it's very difficult to say that this is not me and I don't need to do something. But I also learned that a lot of people, they like to take responsibility. They like to be an innovative, but never criticize. If you give responsibility, and then the result is not what you expect. You cannot point only the finger at the person who did it because either you gave them the wrong instructions or the wrong information. Or the wrong permission. Or the wrong permission, yeah, it's another thing. And especially in sales or in the service industry, you want to rely on your people to take care of the customer. Yeah. And that's all spontaneous because you never know what demand or what request or what the customer is going to need and you expect your people to adapt to that. And sometimes you got to break, break the rules a little bit. Yeah. And that's why I say permission is because if they have no fear of making a mistake, it's the fear yeah. of the mistake I think is the big issue. That's a big issue, but you also have culture-wise, people are more afraid of making mistakes here. The nail that sticks out gets hammered down. It's so you follow the rules because they're used to getting a, a detailed instructions on what to do what to say going into a particular store or, or establishment in Japan and it's basically put, putting on a tape recorder with what greetings they should say, what words they should use. It's considered to be very polite because it's thought through. As a foreigner, it's like, ah, oh, but it doesn't feel really real. It feels checklist. Yeah, a little bit like that, so to say. But you need to tell people that, well, this is what you can do if it goes not the way that you what they to expect fine then we solve it but we have to work with it together so, to say. Yeah. so giving responsibility but also if you say that okay we, we do this i take the responsibility you do it but will not blame you that's a good point because i've actually said i actually said that to one of my staff yesterday they had a meeting with somebody at headquarters and i reminded him i said just because they're from the headquarters you don't have to agree to everything that they say. You can disagree and don't worry. I will support you. Yeah, exactly. I was empowering him to be able to speak his mind to our head office. No, and I think that's a very important key element in, in empowering people and, and telling people that uh, I trust you to do this and I will back you up. Yeah. Not only saying it, I think when your coworkers or your team, they have seen it a few times that you are really fighting for them if it's towards a dealer or if it's a customer issue or if it's a head office thing but when you they feel that you're really you're stepping out and and then they will stick with you it's almost like a collaboration yeah for me key has been i mean a key to success but making a lot of friends also and, and getting trust is first listen 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 and try to understand Listen to understand, not listen to answer. No, exactly. Because you don't need to give an answer directly. I remember when I started studying Japanese, 
university in Sweden. There was a mandatory course that you needed to study Japanese history for one semester. It was like As part of the language course? Part of the language course. That's mandatory. Inter that's interesting. Yeah, and I thought, I've it was never like, heard what? That. Weird? I mean, linguistic? Yeah, I understand, but why Japanese history? But that has helped me so much. In what way? Can you give me an example? I mean, you know the history. I mean, I'm not talking only about the uh, Jomon period with, with the clay pots and whatnot, but especially... <laughs> yeah, Yoi, yeah, Yoi Dai. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but modern history and why things are doing and how things are working before and after the Second World War in the way of thinking and so on. And you can still pick up that yeah. uh, in everyday life in Japan. Do you speak Japanese with all of your staff? Yeah, the staff, the dealers... The, uh, the management team, we speak in English. Okay. But that is a rule that I implemented as, because in the management team, the weekly management team, I've told the people as part of the empowering, but I want their opinion and said that here, in this room, once a week, we meet as equals. Which means that we all speak our second language, which is English for all of us. Because the management team, apart from me, it's only Japanese people. So we meet in English, we talk in English, we only move the conversation as the slowest person in the room. And we also make sure that everybody understands everything. That's interesting. What has been the outcome? There's obviously a reason why you did that. Yeah. I'm curious what that reason was and was it achieved? Uh, both yes and no. I can say that people were not standing up and cheering and said, yay, when that happened. It was like, why? It was more the reactions. Like, why do we have... I mean, you speak Japanese. Why the hell do we need to speak English for? Right. But in my experience, and I also told my team this, that listening to you guys talk to each other, the Japanese language, you're not always very direct. English, to me at least, is a much more direct language. This is true. So it was... I think it's less misunderstandings in English. Become, it forces people to become more direct. Very clear. Wow. I, and this is still work in progress. And we do the, the meeting minutes in English as well. And then it's sort of, you can always go back and say, this is decision. So there's no discussion of, was there a decision or was it not? <laughs> there was no high context, low context, reading the air, no. kukyo, yomu. Well, that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. No, exactly. And I had, uh, it was interesting when we when we started up, to some extent actually, when I was starting up with Scania in Japan, then uh, one of the companies that we were talking to, not to say which company, but it worked for a big construction company in Japan. It's one of their middle managers. And he said very openly, he said, I hate this reading the air. And I jumped a little bit when he said it. It's like, you're Japanese. A lot of people are kind of proud of, yeah, we know, we read the air and we can, we understand each other in a way. And he said, bullshit. It only causes confusion and frustration. Misunderstanding. Yeah. You have decisions that nobody knows what somebody actually decided. Right. And I think maybe that's the extreme way of it. And, and I think it... In maybe in other situations it works really well between people, but people are individuals. Yeah. So I wanted to avoid that, that yeah. no reading the air or, or sort of nuances and maybe this and kind of. Yeah. And, and so, okay, we to the point, we do it in English. That's a really interesting takeaway, Mats, from this conversation. Almost makes me want to do that too. A lot of times 
foreigners that speak Japanese really well, they like to make it a point that, yeah, all of my dealings in Japan is in Japanese. It's almost like a, a point of pride. What you mentioned, me including, I mean, you want to sort of be a little bit proud of, yeah, I live here and, and you want to gambatene and, yeah. and do everything in Japanese. I don't know your experience, but I also, not many times, but a few times, I got the feedback. So, well, you speak Japanese, you should have understood this. So just because I speak Japanese, I'm judged harder by some people. Because, yeah. I said, well, you live here, so you should have understood this, or you should have done this. Mm. And it's sort of, well, no, because to me it wasn't clear. It was very much too much uh, right. reading the air, and, uh, and I yeah, didn't get that point exactly. Right. So it has nothing to do with blaming anyone. I mean, right. more, mostly myself in that case for not knowing better. But... But I think it, English is a, it's a language that's it's good when you want to simplifying and make it more to the point. Yeah. And especially when you work with your second language, because then, at least in my experience, I mean, I've studied, uh, I mean, I'm Swedish, speak Swedish, and then studied German, French, well, English, of course, and Japanese. But you tend to be more specific with fewer words. Let me ask you this, Matt. Sure. So you speak Japanese. You've studied history. We all have these favorite Japanese words that are oh, cultural yeah. and it, it really describes something unique for Japan and it's not really directly translatable. So what is your favorite Japanese word that does not have an exact English translation? It's a very good question. Yeah, I would like to say ikigai, but it's kind of, no, it's, no. Ikigai is almost like a Japanese word that foreigners made up kind to, of to create some uniquely Japanese actually even even I had a guy from head office sending it to me and say is this correct spelling yeah. how in the hell do you know ikigai secondly how are you going to use it yeah here's the challenge Matt ask some of your Japanese colleagues on Monday I ask did. them what is your ikigai yeah. and they're going to look at you like what yeah No, and I did because that guys. I took a few of the my guys around me and said, "Ikigai, this is my interpretation." And then it was like, "What do you want to know? Why are you talking about ikigai?" Yeah. So, so I'm not gonna. That's not my. I would say that uh, my favorite non-translatable or no direct translation. It's very simple. It's itarakimasu. Oh. And, and why do you say that? I love food. I share your interest. In, I, not interest. I have. I love cooking. I don't do it enough, but I, I really love cooking. And uh, I, weekends, whenever I can take time, I try to cook something nice. For me, weekend is not really a proper weekend unless you have a, a kind of a little bit of a feast, so to say, treat yourself. So, so. so talk about itadakimasu. Why do you like it? Because you have, uh, also in Sweden, we have we have expression for this, but it's like in English. You're, you're blessing the food or you're sort of happy for receiving this. and But it's sort of, a bunch of words put together but in Japanese you have just I'm very happy for this meal yeah. and in one word simple word it's ceremonial yeah it signifies the commencement of something in Japan there's always a start to something yeah and there's always an ending to something yeah like if we have two drinks which we do have you know I can't take a sip and you can't take a sip until we say cheers no exactly it's kind of like that yeah there are rules for so many things in Japan on how to behave and they're 
most of them are unwritten. You have no idea how to behave and so on. And also, when we had board meeting with with Scania, my previous company, the board came over to Japan. We met with Japanese company as well, and sitting down, and, and all my Swedish colleagues were like, "Mats, what should we do?" So it's like, when you hear "itadakimas," that's get. Then right. you you can start. That is a key to yeah. you can start. It also has a feeling of gratitude to yeah. it. Kind of a happy word, so to say. Do you feel the same way about gochiso sama, which is what you say at the end of a meal? Yeah, kind of. For me, it was also itadakimas. When kids were small, I mean, they they learn. It's one of their words that they pick up. You're more excited at the start of the meal yeah. than you are at the end of the meal. So yeah. itadakimas, you know, has some anticipation to yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So you started off saying that you've always been a bike guy. Yeah, you like motorcycles from a very young age. So working for Ducati must be a dream come true. Yeah, in many ways. For me, and I think for a lot of people, when you start with motorcycling, it's the iconic brand. It's sort of the peak. It doesn't get better with motorcycles and performing motorcycles and, and designs and so on. So when this opportunity presented itself, how did that happen? Did you search it out? Did the head hunter contact you? How did you go from Ikea to Scandia then to suddenly being the representative director president of Ducati Japan? Scania and Ducati were in the same group. It's a Volkswagen group. I know that my name had been around in the group, let's say. So I was... Uh, Tapped, tapped on the shoulder. And it's like you started off at Ducati as a sales director. Yep. And within one year, you were representative director president. How does that happen in such a short time? Well, there was a need. So I say, the previous guy was leaving and uh, somebody else. So I stepped in. Mats, I love your story. You've made me think about getting a bike now in Japan. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Uh, you're obviously very passionate about the brand Ducati. And you love riding motorcycles. So yep. you walk the walk, you talk the talk. You're the perfect guy for the job. Mats, thank you for this fabulous conversation today. Oh, likewise, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to be on board. It was a pleasure. That's it. That's it. Done. And that was Mats Lindstrom president of Ducati Japan. I really love his hands-on and logical management style, and it seems to be a great fit for Japan. Also his quote, get the Ferrari performance with a Ducati for around 3 million yen. Now that's tempting and very attractive. To learn more about Ducati and their various bikes, just go to Ducati.com and then click on international sites at the top right hand to select your location. Many more similar discussions like this one are available at nowandzen.jp. There you can listen to episodes with various Japan-related professionals, leave a comment or a review, even a voice message. How about that? Thanks for listening and catch you next time.